The National Archives podcast series, The Journey's End Battalion, The Ninth East Surrey, and R.C. Sheriff in the Great War. Presented by Michael Lucas and Andrew Lucas. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'd like to introduce my son collaborator here, Andrew, who is going to be reading accounts from both sides of the lines. Andrew is presently writing a book on the Saxons on the Western Front. This is the outline of the talk. I'm going to talk about how I started out, what it aims to do, some key episodes from the book with readings by Andrew, and I have given Sheriff disproportionate amount of interest for this talk because I think that's the, the most obvious um, area of uh, particular interest, wider interest for the public. I'd also like to talk about Journey's End, the play, and the models for its characters and situations. And finally, I'd be very happy to take questions at the end. So how did I get started in all of this? Well, this is a picture of my grandmother uh, and her brother Charlie with their parents in uh, Surrey in the 1890s. And uh, my mother was very keen on uh, exploring the family's uh, history. But Charlie had long been dead and little was known about him. We knew that he'd served on the Western Front with the East Surrey Regiment as a private soldier and it was believed that at some time he'd been captured. I discovered through my researches, mostly here uh, and also uh, in the um, Surrey History Centre, that uh, Charlie had served for three years indeed on the Western Front He'd been wounded no less than three times and taken prisoner of war very near the end of the war. And I was fascinated to find that Charlie and R.C. Sheriff, the author of Journey's End, had served in the same battalion. So I located Sheriff's autobiography, which is called No Leading Lady. But I was disappointed and puzzled because this has got much about the writing of Journey's End that only begins after the Great War. So it was a happy coincidence when I found Sheriff's papers at Surrey History Centre where I was already there researching the regiment's papers. I gradually established what Sheriff had experienced and possible reasons for his later reticence. When he wrote about his experiences some years later, he only covered his first days at the front in a series of articles in the regimental magazine. And then the period immediately before he was wounded in August 1917, in a, a book of essays called Promise of Greatness. I also established along the way that a number of supposed facts about Sheriff's military career are in fact wrong. It seems that this arises from the carelessness of various people. I don't believe there was any intention by Sheriff to mislead. First of all, he served in France from October 1916 to August 1917 only although some people would say that was long enough. He was in England for the German March 1918 offensive, which is the setting for Journey's End. He wasn't in France then. He was wounded only once, and that was in August 1917, and not seriously. And he didn't win the military cross. That was uh, won by another man of the same surname. But on the positive side, my research is meant that I discovered uh, men and situations who I believe to be models for Journey's End. So moving on, what the book aims to do, I've aimed to provide not just a simple narrative based on the war diary, 
that was already done briefly around about 1920 as part of an overall regimental history by two senior officers, Pierce and Sloman, neither of whom had served with the 9th Battalion in Surrey's. That book has its strengths, but it does lack a context for modern readers and avoids controversy. A large number of sources were not available to the authors or they chose not to use them. Instead, what I'm aiming to do is provide context, make the widest possible use of published and unpublished sources, address the issues that Pierce and Sloman were unwilling or felt it unnecessary to address or did not have the space or material to address. I've aimed to give particular attention not only to the big events like the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Loss, but also to Sheriff's time with the battalion, which was mostly treated very briefly by Pierce and Sloman, because as far as they were concerned, not much was going on. And also to give something of the battalion's range of experiences. I've also considered how the battalion changed over time, its makeup, its officers, its effectiveness. Sheriff was profoundly influenced by his time with the battalion. He saw all his frontline service with it. I've endeavoured to clarify his experiences and his reactions to them. What I've written has to reflect the sources available. So whilst it may appear that there is more material from the officers, the reason for much of that is, first of all, that the men's records were largely destroyed in 1940 by bombing but also the, the records for most officers survive, and there is relatively little unofficial uh, material from other ranks, although there are very useful reports from repatriated prisoners of war, which in fact are, are here, available online. I've also aimed to uh, address the German perspective with Andrew's help, and here we aim to break new ground in Great War British unit histories. Too often the Germans have been left out, but inspired by Jack Sheldon's books, Andrew has researched the German unit histories for the view from the other side of no man's land, and sometimes that means we've been able to describe the same incident from both sides. I've tried to avoid imposing modern attitudes on a very different age. It's easy to be appalled by the terrible experiences of the battalion, in part because of the errors of military planners. But the failures and hardships were not all on one side, as the book demonstrates, and the British Army was repeatedly pushed into premature offences on the Western Front in order to support its allies. So now I'd like to move on to some key episodes, what, battali what the battalion and sheriff experienced, but put things in context. This is the uh, fatalities, month by month, of the battalion. Around 850 men died serving with it. And you can see the peaks, which are the, the Battle of Loss at the start with, Battle of Sop, the Somme, August, September 1916. But you can see in between times, there are long, relatively quiet intervals of trench holding, although death and disablement is always a threat. Now the Battle of Loss in September 1915. This was the British Army's biggest battle so far. On the first day, a complete breakthrough looked possible. Two raw divisions, the 21st and the 24th, were set to attack on the second day of the battle. Dash was expected to outweigh inexperience, but the failure of the supporting attacks 
meant that seven battalions of the 24th Division, including the 9th East Surreys in the 72nd Brigade, advanced into a sack. And here we have, this is the advance of the advance of the brigade in the middle. We have, this is the German line they were set to attack, which was heavily wired and not easily observed from the British lines. This is the uh, village of Hurmouche and these woods. So there were Germans occupying the village, there were Germans on the flank, and these, the flank attacks had never cleared these. So here we have the 9th East Surreys here advancing to be shot at from the sides. So the result was disaster. The troops were unable to break through the wire and under heavy fire. Facing them was Dr. Bertling with the German 22nd Infantry Regiment. 26. Sorry, sorry. The Englishmen attacked in whole hosts and with real guts. <coughs> Our men shot standing upright as rapidly as they could pull the triggers. No Englishman got through the wire. The attack flooded backwards. Along the front where they had attacked lay numerous dead and wounded. Indeed, half of the battalion's 900 men were casualties on that day. And that includes 150 and more who were dead or dying. The Germans called it the field of corpses. This man was simply one of them, Private Teddy Cut. Loss for many meant lost lives or crippling wounds, but it also blasted reputations. It was an unpleasant rush to find scapegoats. Some accused the troops of bolting. Sir John French, the CNC, was obliged to resign. The CO of the 24th Division resigned. The CO of the 9th East Surreys was sacked. The General Capper, the new divisional commander, judged, Both officers and men advanced gallantly and did their best, and the best trained troops in the whole of the British or any other army would have found it difficult to succeed where the infantry of the 24th Division failed. I am confident that the unofficial reports alluded to in GHQ's letter are entirely unwarranted and cast a most undeserved slur on the conduct of the infantry of the division. But the slurs continued, as Sheriff himself heard a year later, everywhere. The 24th? Oh yes, you mean the division that ran away at loss. Ironically, the enemy were more generous. The battalion's nickname, the Gallants, is believed to have arisen from remarks by German officers made after the battle. Afterwards, the 9th East Surrey was set to trench holding at Ypres. The conditions were often very bad, but the casualties relatively light. <coughs> and here we have a photograph, informally posed, of uh, Saxon Jaeger, one of the units who were opposing the 9th East Surreys at this point. And not only left that, but left a detailed description of their clashes with uh, 9th East Surrey patrols there, as a number of units did. <coughs> uh, and in particular, regarding the death of 2nd Lieutenant Hanford near Railway Wood at Ypres, when his patrol's attention was caught by a considerable noise made by fresh German troops arriving one January night to relieve the Saxons. By chance, in the glow of a flare cartridge, an enemy officer was spotted a few metres in front of the trenches, who, half upright and astonished, 
seemed to be seeking the source of the noise of the relief. Immediately, several men got a hand, among them Jaeger Lehnert. The enemy was chased away with well-aimed shots, leaving their patrol leader dead behind them. The battalion's next big action was on the Somme, which it reached in August 1916. It was now experienced, but it again met disaster. This young man, Captain Vaughan, who was only 20 years old, led the 250-strong two-company attack on the 16th of August at Guillemont against a very strong position with poor artillery support. There were 75% casualties and Vaughan was among the dead. 9th East Surrey were then holding Delville Wood at the beginning of September under artillery bombardment after the Germans had failed to recapture it with their infantry. Captain Pirrie, the veteran medical officer, wrote, Those four days and five nights were the most trying I've ever spent. Very little sleep and very heavy shelling. I don't know how anyone got out alive. The wood was so heavily shelled by day and night that all wounded were stored in Hun dugouts all day till between 5 and 8 a.m. and 5 and 8 p.m., during which periods the shelling seemed to die down and so allow the cases to be got out to my aid post. Then they were carried from me by RAMC bearers to a dressing station. My regimental bearers did very fine work, especially Mead, Trish, Oyston and Hardica. They were fearless and worked like slaves. And here we have Captain Perry. And in fact, I'm working on editing his diary at, at this time. He was sadly killed only a year later. It has to be said that the conditions were horrible too for the Germans opposite. Thirsty, hungry and ground down, officers and men lay together in mud-filled craters amongst dead comrades who could not be carried back. We were obliged to be satisfied if the dead could be given a hasty shallow burial where they fell. However, the fallen who lay between the trenches, and often also further to the rear, remained unburied. As a result, the stench of corpses was virtually overwhelming, and thousands of flies put the troops off their food, despite their hunger. And now we come to the period of uh, R.C. Sheriff's own service. Robert Sheriff was an insurance clerk, and he unsuccessfully applied for a commission in August 1914 when he was aged 18. He then enlisted as a private soldier in November 1915 with the artist's rifles and was commissioned in 1916. He arrived with the 9th East Surrey on the 1st of October 1916. And here is the very young RC Sheriff sporting his new uniform. He would serve through with that same battalion until August 1917. The battalion was likely engaged until June 1917 in the uh, summer fighting at Ypres. When he arrived, the battalion had of course been wrecked on the Somme. There were only about 200 survivors. It was rebuilt with drafts and returned wounded, one of whom, Corporal Billman, I was shocked to find the remnants of what, a few weeks before, was a smart and strong battalion. The battles on the Somme had thinned the ranks awfully. Just a few of my old pals remained, and I was soon listening to the accounts of some terrible times they had after I was wounded. 
However, the good name of the regiment had been upheld, although at such a price, and there was satisfaction that the Bosch was getting a good hiding. Sheriff wrote home almost daily, and in 1922 he composed what he called Memories of Active Service for his mother, which covered his first three months at the front. He later revised this uh, to produce articles for the regimental journal in the late 1930s. Sheriff was struck by the colonel's talk to his new officers. He lay bare the cold, uncoloured truth of war. He spoke of the qualities that a young officer should possess and the duties that he should understand. A cold dread came over me. Am I an efficient officer? Do I know enough? Will I be sent back to England as an awful example of incompetence? But there were compensations, looking back years later. I was to meet in this battalion, and particularly in this company, that's C Company, some of the best men I ever knew. But his first impressions on seeing his men of his company were... They looked the biggest set of ruffians I'd ever set my eyes on. Anyone seeing them, without knowing who they were, might have thought that Alibaba's forty thieves and the pirate crew from Treasure Island had amalgamated to do some deed of super-villainy. Sheriff, taking in the unfamiliar sights and sounds of the front line, thought... Many others, like me, were spending their first night in the line, standing about awkwardly like children in a strange room, fingering their new revolver holsters and remembering the time, not so far distant, when they last wore weapons as pirates or brigands defending a summer house in a garden. His captain later sent Sheriff by night to inspect the barbed wire defences in no man's land with a corporal to gain confidence. After a short stay on Vimy Ridge, the battalion returned to Loss, where it had met disaster just the year previously. Perry considered this a poor exchange for Vimy Ridge. A wretched looking country flat and nothing but dirty coal mining villages with crowds of huge slag heaps and chimney stacks. As for the front line, he wrote, It's in a wretched state. Mud galore and parapets all falling in. It will take months of work to repair it. Here we have a wrecked pit head in the uh, vicinity. And these, uh, this is a photograph that um, Andrew, another photograph Andrew found, which is Germans facing the uh, 72nd Brigade, which included the East Surreys at loss uh, in a fortified crater. Christmas saw a mixture of tragedy and relaxation. Billman records on Christmas Eve, Four men were blown to pieces on their way out of the trenches. It was so very sad. Just before Christmas, and only that morning, those men had received letters wishing them a happy Christmas. By noon, the remainder of us were passing through Vermels. The mud had pretty well dried on us, and we did look some objects. But with a cigarette on and many jokes flying about, we at last reached Philosoph and started to tidy up a bit so as not to lose the next day. Christmas Day arrived, and we made the most of it enjoying a really good dinner and attending a fine concert. The day soon passed with many pleasant memories of happier Christmases and sincere wishes that the next would be spent in peace and quietness in our dear old Blighty. And this is uh, a Italian Christmas card from the uh, 
a year later, but nevertheless it uh, gives you some idea. And this is a car from the other side, German New Year 1917 greetings. Sheriff was glad at this time to be loaned to the tunnelers. He respected Hilton, his company commander, but he didn't like his relentless sarcasm. And the battalion's locum commanding officer, Swanton, was a martinet. With the engineers, Sheriff was sometimes shelled. And here we have a picture of the men who did the damage. He wrote home, When I spent that first eight days in the trenches, I never got the feeling of fear so much as I sometimes do now. But let's hope I shall soon get over it and grow used to it. Sheriff saw the infantry officer's life as one that was dull, monotonous, lacking in intellectual challenge, and taken up with waiting, which he found nerve-wracking. He wanted a transfer either to the engineers or to the flying corps. Sheriff was nevertheless obliged to return to the battalion. Swanton wouldn't support his transfer to the engineers. But he stood up well to a New Year bombardment, what he later called a pretty hot time for 12 hours in the trenches. It shook the nerves of Captain Tetley, previously awarded the MC for bravery in similar circumstances. There was a successful raid by the battalion in January 1917 <coughs> with around 60 men, but Sheriff was not involved. Indeed, he was now away sick for two and a half weeks with neuralgia, nerve pain, a vague diagnosis covering a range of possible conditions. He seems to have thought it was psychosomatic. He wrote home, Any noises worry me, and I can't set my mind properly to anything. But I shall have to get back to the regiment, I expect, and see how I get on. The feelings may wear off later on. After a period of training and rec recreation, the battalion was sent to Cité Calon, near Loss. It was an exceptionally cold winter, but the troops made themselves comfortable in the miners' ruined houses. Sheriff enjoyed the comradeship of his brother officers, but was also very sympathetic towards his men. The inspirational Colonel de la Fontaine, badly wounded on the Somme, returned to the battalion. And here, this is Colonel de la Fontaine, who was to be killed some months later. <coughs> the sheriff in this picture is in the, the middle row there. This is uh, War Diamond, his company commander, who I'll be mentioning later. In March, Sheriff was sent to train recruits for two weeks. When he returned, the area was very bad for trench mortars, the German Minenwerfer. They were firing a, a missile, as you can see, the size of a small dustbin. And this gentleman here is my wife's grandfather. It has to be said, however, that German infantry complained of similar attention from the British. In April, the Germans lost Vimy Ridge. They were forced to fall back into Lons. And this shows the state of the city after uh, repeated attention by artillery. One officer of Sheriff's company was killed at this time and another wounded. But meanwhile, Sheriff's personal crisis was worsening. I absolutely could not bring myself to face the line again. 
And I went to a doctor and explained everything to him. He's given me a few days rest with the transport. Ten days later, he confided in his father that he discussed his nerves and neuralgia with a doctor. But if the doctor said he must return to the line, he had no choice. But what I dread is that by going up, I should make some serious mistake through lack of confidence. He was overwhelmed by the realisation that a single mistake by him could cost the lives of his men. When you first get out here, you realise that there is a certain strain to put up with. One gets to the line and is rather surprised at its quietness. You feel rather agreeably surprised and then someone says, Look out, here's a mini! And you see what appears to be a shell making apparently slowly upwards. Then it turns and comes down with a swish and makes a terrific explosion. This goes on day after day. And then one day a man may be blown to pieces by a mini. And every time you walk past that shattered piece of trench, you have the pleasure of seeing pieces of his anatomy hanging on bits of barbed wire, etc. One day a man is sniped, and you may see his blood-stained helmet carried away. Sheriff goes on to say that his nervous strain got worse with time, although some managed to overcome it and not show fear. Sheriff, it seems to me, was showing signs of neurasthenia, shell shock. An officer sent home the year before, after a trench had been blown in on him, had a medical board that found... Following three months active service in France, he developed symptoms of neurasthenia, emotionalism, depression, loss of confidence, overreaction to stimuli, a constant feeling of horror, and clear visual pictures of experiences in the trenches. Lord Moran was Winston Churchill's physician in later years, but at this time he was the medical officer in the 24th Division. He wrote The Anatomy of Courage in the 1940s using his great war experience. There seemed to be four degrees of courage and four orders of men. Men who did not feel fear. Men who felt fear but did not show it. Men who felt fear and showed it but did their job. Men who felt fear showed it and shirked. Few men spent their trench lives with their feet firmly planted on one rung of the ladder. They might have days without showing fear, followed by days when their plight was plain to all. At other times, they were possessed by the fear that they would be found wanting and branded as cowards, when in the toil and bloody sweat of trying to conquer themselves, they would end by doing their job without a sign of fear. Sheriff admired and envied confident, apparently fearless men like the future Major General Lechmere Thomas, who joined the battalion at Delver Wood as a subaltern, just aged 18. Some officers and men were clearly not up to the stress of frontline service. <coughs> Many wished for a blighty wound which would take them back to England. Among the other ranks, there were some cases of self-inflicted wounds, and there was even the odd suicide. There was the odd deserter who didn't return from leave. Second Lieutenant Abrams was dismissed from the service for going AWOL from the rear area. Some officers moved to non-combatant roles as physically or mentally unfit. Others, after lengthy frontline service, were given breaks as instructors. The whole issue of officer turnover and reasons for it are discussed in the book. Unfortunately, there aren't sources available to examine the position of the other ranks in detail. Now, it seems to me that Sheriff was heading for a nervous collapse at this stage, but he recovered. Why? 
Well, the battalion was out of line, out of the uh, line to mid-May. Neuralgia had been linked by a doctor to his eye problem, so it wasn't simply a psychosomatic one, which was reassuring to Sheriff. And he had his stoic philosophy, writing, I am trying to take everything quite calmly, a la Marcus Aurelius. Captain War Diamond was perhaps a key influence at this time. Sheriff considered his company commander inspirational. He refers to his magic hand. And Sheriff took greater pride in his company. Every day I became bound more securely to C Company, and every day I loved and esteemed it more. The Battle of Messines at this time was a great victory in June 1917, a real morale booster. The battalion was in reserve for this action and was not even needed. Sheriff was afterwards sent on a sniping and intelligence course away from the front, and then he received his long-awaited leave. It's not clear to the ex what extent fellow officers noticed Sheriff's fear. On the one hand, Sheriff could have received unsympathetic remarks about neuralgia, just as Stannard gives them in Journey's End. But on the other hand, Colonel Clark describes Sheriff, Sheriff afterwards as a steady, unassuming young fellow of good presence, carried a warm charm in his personality, and had a certain calm, quiet air of distinction, much respected by his men. Sheriff's papers also include a number of affectionate letters from his fellow officers. It's easy to say that Sheriff wasn't as suitable as an infantry officer, but he seems to have managed to overcome his problems. The battalion took heavy casualties holding captured ground after Messines. The offensive was resumed at the end of July in the Battle of Pilkin Ridge. There was a massive British bombardment which opened it. A German general later wrote, a hurricane of fire, completely beyond anyone's experience, broke out. The entire earth of Flanders rocked and seemed to be on fire. This was not just drum fire. It was as though hell itself had slipped its bonds. What were the raw terrors of Verdun and the Somme compared to this grotesquely huge outpouring of raw power? The British were <coughs> optimistic, but with the weather breaking, the offensive soon bogged down in mud. On the 2nd of August 1917, Sheriff's active service came to an end. The battalion was advancing to relieve other units heavily engaged the previous day. The conditions were awful, with continued heavy rain. The communication trenches were flooded. The troops were forced to advance in the open and heavily shelled. Fifty years later, Sheriff recalled, The whole thing became a drawn-out nightmare. The shelling had destroyed everything. As far as you could see, it was like an ocean of thick brown porridge. All of this area had been desperately fought over in the earlier battles of Ypres. Many of the dead had been buried where they fell, and the shells were unearthing and tossing up the decayed bodies. It was a warm, humid day, and the stench was horrible. War Diamond sent Sheriff off with a runner to try to establish contact with the neighbouring company. The Germans were now shelling us with whiz-bangs which is a 7.7-centimetre field gun shell. We heard the thin whistle of its approach rising to a shriek. It landed on top of a concrete pillbox that we were passing, barely five yards away. The crash was deafening. I was half-stunned. I remember putting my hand to the right side of my face and feeling nothing. To my horror, I thought the whole side had been blown away. Covered in mud and blood, 
Sheriff reported to War Diamond, who told him to find a dressing station. Sheriff and his orderly had a long and difficult journey through mud and shell fire to find medical attention. Fortunately, his wounds looked more serious than they were. The shell had sent steel splinters upwards. Sheriff and his orderly had been showered instead with pulverised concrete. He recorded 52 pieces of concrete the size of beans or peas being extracted from his face, hand and leg. All the same, he was perhaps lucky to be evacuated to England rather than kept at a base hospital in France. This is the postcard he wrote to his father. Dear Pips, I am writing this left-handed as my right is hors de combat at present. I was hit by several small splinters also on the right side of my face. The shell was so close that the big pieces went over my head. It burst about five feet away. Lucky for me, my wounds are none worse and the shell no bigger. I feel quite fit, no pain, hope to get to England. I am very much bound up and look worse than I feel. Hoping to see you soon, from your loving son, Bob. The battalion fought on in horrible conditions and taking heavy casualties. Colonel de la Fontaine was killed, leading from the front. And now, after a quiet period over the autumn and winter, we move on to the German March 1918 offensive. Sheriff didn't return to France. His wounds weren't serious, but he wasn't anxious to return. He managed to stay in England training men. On the 21st of March, there was a huge German attack. Here we have the German infantry about to go into action at this time. The first company of the 9th East Surrey were overwhelmed in the initial attack. The other three companies were in reserve. Colonel de Le Fleming was killed on reconnaissance and Major Nobby Clark took over. Clark carried out a fighting retreat until the 26th of March. The battalion was then cut off but fought on until overwhelmed. Only about 60 unwounded men were captured. A number of sheriff's old comrades died. His company commander, War Diamond, was captured. Private Eatwell recalled Major Clark's leadership. He said, We have nothing on our flanks, and there are no supports behind. You will either be killed or captured before the morning is out. Stick it out for the honour of the regiment. A very brave man and loved by every man in the battalion. There were only about 30 survivors to fight on with the remnants of the brigade. Sergeant Fred Billman, who we quoted early, by this time was back in an English hospital. He wrote on the 27th of March with wonderful understatement to his fiancée. I got wounded Saturday night and landed here last <coughs> night. Am hit in left foot, right leg and right arm, but not serious. Well, darling, I guess you are wondering why you've not heard from me, but it's been a bit busy over there. I'm glad to say he made a good recovery from his wounds, and here are Mr and Mrs Bilton on their wedding day <coughs> later that year. The Germans were finally held in front of Amiens. At great cost, the 24th Division had lost the last traces of the bad reputation it had gained at loss. The battalion was rebuilt and holding the line again at Lens joined in the advance to victory in the autumn and took heavy losses at Hossi in October 1918 after initially a very successful attack. The armistice came on the 11th of November. 
The war diary records, the men hardly credited the news. An official photographer took a picture, pictures of the commanding officer thanking the men and then cheering the king. And here we have one of the two, which is frequently reproduced. There was little celebration. It was hard to realize the war was really over. No beer was available and billets were overcrowded. And now I'd like to move on to Journey's End to discuss the play and models for its characters and situations. Sheriff was demobbed and went back to insurance. He found it difficult to settle. I think there was an element of survivor guilt. He wrote plays for an amateur group. He picked up a novel he tried to write about hero worship. Dennis Stanhope and Jimmy Rawley were schoolboys. Dennis seemed to have all the gifts, while Jimmy was a plodder. But after school, their respective positions gradually changed. Sheriff wondered if it would work as a play, and by concentrating on the few days at the front, leading to the great German March 1918 offensive, with Jimmy moving heaven and earth to join his hero. That became Journey's End. It was first performed in December 1928 with the young Laurence Olivier Stanhope. Journey's End became an extraordinary worldwide success. Sheriff trying to explain this. It was the first war play that kept its feet in the Flanders mud. All the previous plays had aimed at higher things. They carried messages, sermons against war, symbolic revelations. But the public knew enough about war to take that all for granted. What they'd never been shown before on the stage was how men really lived in the trenches, how they talked and how they behaved. With typical modesty, he took no particular credit for this. For him, it was just how he'd happened to write it was the way that people wanted it. Regarding the play briefly for those who aren't familiar with it, it opens in a company officer's dugout 50 yards behind the front line, three days before the German offensive. As such, Sheriff considered the characters caught in a trap with no hope of escape. Young Jimmy Rawley has pulled strings to be sent to join his hero, Dennis Stannard, the company commander at the front. But Dennis is unwelcoming and dramatically changed by the war. He's keeping his shattered nerves going with whiskey and resents the invasion of his privacy discovery of his weakness. The other characters include Uncle Osborne, his steady second-in-command, Trotter, a cheerful ex-ranker, and Hibbert, a nervous officer with neuralgia, who is determined to escape the front line before the German attack. Light relief is provided by Mason the cook. Stanhope refuses to let Hibbert get away to hospital. When Hibbert confesses his fear, Stanhope reveals his own and urges him to stand by his comrades. Brigade orders a raid to identify the German units opposite, <coughs> though the Germans are known to be on the alert. Osborne and most of the raiders are killed, but Rawley secures a prisoner, although Rawley is then mortally wounded in the German opening bombardment. Stannard, now reconciled to him, has to leave the dugout to face <coughs> the German attack. The play ends. Sheriff didn't name the bombs for his characters, but he did write, Besides Stanhope and Raleigh, the other characters walked in without invitation. I'd known them all so well in the trenches. He also wrote to Colonel Clark in 1936. None of the characters is drawn from life, but you may find in some of them a likeness to men you knew. Clark wrote, I posted Sheriff to see. 
Fortunately, otherwise I fear there would have been no journey's end. Here, we have, this comes from an anonymous cutting at Surrey History Centre, reproducing a photograph of C Company officers giving the names for the models. So here, this is Captain War Diamond. And he's believed to be the model for Stannock. Lieutenant uh, Douglas here, the model for Osborne. And second Lieutenant Trenchard was the model for Trotter. And obituaries for War Diamond do say having some claim to having been the original Stannock. Godfrey War Diamond was born in 1890. He was educated at Marlborough and Cambridge. He was a distinguished sportsman, but left without a, taking a degree. He arrived with the 9th East Surrey on the 1st of September 1916 at Delver Wood. With the heavy losses on the Somme, he was soon made an active company com acting company commander. And he then took over Sheriff C Company early in March 1917. He was clearly not simply effective, but positively inspirational. He gave conspicuous service in August 1917 in the horrible conditions at Ypres, then distinguished himself from the Great Retreat of March 1918. He was tough-minded and cool-headed. He won an MC, but was captured in the battalion's last stand. He was an inspiring leader, a varsity man, an athlete, just the man to inspire hero worship, including perhaps in Sheriff himself. Curiously, the respective positions of War Diamond and Sheriff changed as in Sheriff's unfinished novel. During the war, War Diamond had been an inspirational and distinguished officer, Sheriff an obscure and undistinguished one. But after the war, War Diamond's life fell apart. His wife divorced him. He fell into the hands of money lenders and was sacked by his father from the family firm. He was even declared bankrupt in 1923. By 1931, he was a commercial traveler and his second marriage had broken up. But Sheriff was now a celebrity, a man of means. Indeed, War Diamond in 1939 was asking Sheriff for a reference. And now Archibald Douglas, known as father in the battalion, a clergyman's son and electrical engineer. He seems to be the main model for Uncle Osborne. Sheriff describes... A tall, dark man, one of the finest men I've ever known. He was also about the coolest man I ever saw in the trenches. Nothing seemed to make the slightest impression on him, and he did his job as if he were trying to make a silly game seem as if it was sensible, in order to encourage the others. Sadly, he was mortally wounded in March 1918. Percy High, an older officer and schoolmaster, I also believe contributed to the Osborne character, and he survived the war. Cecil Trenchard, the supposed model for Trotter, certainly looks well-fed, and as Trotter indeed should look. He was a stock agent born in 1881, living in Australia. There's no evidence he served in the ranks. His arrival at the front was delayed by a bad fall, leaving the mess. He was wounded after just four weeks at the front, losing an eye. Mason, the droll officer's cook in Journey's End, seems modelled on Sheriff's soldier servant Morris. Sheriff wrote home, My servant has just been reading the instructions of a box of veal, which came up in rations last night. Cut 
very thin and placed between slices of new bread with a little tender lettuce and mayonnaise dressing. It'll be a bit awkward about the lettuce. Raleigh and Hibbert were perhaps aspects of Sheriff's own character, hero worship in the former and difficulty controlling fear in the latter. Sheriff obviously made some changes to characters from his models, so for instance Stannard is much younger than War Diamond. Regarding the events of Journey's End, as I said, Ninth East Surrey were near St Quentin for the German attack in March 1918, although only one company was immediately engaged. Sheriff told Clark that the raid in Journey's End was inspired by the battalions in January 1917, although that one was very successful. There are a number of Journey's End's little features in Sheriff's uh, articles, My Diary. So, for instance, his first meeting with Douglas, uh, Douglas is drying a sock over a candle, which he gives to Hardy in Journey's End. I am delighted that Journey's End continues to be revived to great success. Long may it be so. I hope if you see it, you'll think of Sheriff Old, Sheriff's old comrades who inspired it. Thank you very much for listening. I have to say that if any of you uh, are interested in the sources that I used, uh, including here at TNA, they are listed in the book. This talk was recorded on the 18th of April 2013 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.